Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> I'm giving the jackhammer a minute. Can, can, you, can you hear that? Only a very little bit. Okay, great. I would say it's not pronounced at all. Oh, I hear it now a little bit. <laughs> well, you know. <laughs> Hey readers, I'm Ann Bogle, and this is What Should I Read Next, episode 112. Welcome to the show that's dedicated to answering the question that plagues every reader. What should I read next? We don't get bossy on the show. What we will do here is give you the information you need to choose your next read. Every week, we'll talk all things books and reading and do a little literary matchmaking with one guest. Today, I'm chatting with author and podcaster Laura Vanderkam who you may know from her books, 168 Hours, I Know How She Does It, and What the Most Successful People Do Before Breakfast, or her new podcast, Best of Both Worlds. Longtime What Should I Read Next listeners will recognize Laura's name because she has a theory about two different types of readers, and I've talked about it with guests more than once. Today, we dive into all the details and also discuss Laura's lifetime and recent favorites, lots of ideas for making time to read, bucket list books, and reading War and Peace in the grocery checkout line. Let's get to it. Laura, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Oh, well, I've been wanting to have you on for a long time. I'm not sure if you know this, but we've actually talked about you on the show because talking to some readers, what they say about their reading habits makes me think of a piece that you wrote, I think at this point, several years ago about different styles of readers. So we've talked about your work, even if we haven't talked to you in person. I'm flattered. <laughs> Thank you for doing that. <laughs> well, I have I have heard myself mentioned because I've listened to your podcast many times, and uh, I, I love it. It's a it's, it's such a great resource, and I am so excited to be on it. So I'm glad we made this work. Well, I wonder if we should give you warnings in the future. It's a little jarring to be listening to a podcast and then think, oh wait, that's me. <laughs> uh, I, I love it. I guess we all love to hear our own names, right? <laughs> well, I'm glad it was a pleasant surprise. Well, I would love to dive right into that because we're talking at a time of year when people are really thinking about their reading goals and what they want to be different in their reading lives and especially how they can read more. And around here, we don't think there's any judgment necessarily in, oh, are you reading 100 books this year? Or are you reading 10? Like any reading is good reading, or at least we want to help 
people get more out of their reading life. But what you've written about supply side versus demand side readers, and I don't want to lose anybody with economic terms, we'll unpack them really fast, has been really enlightening to a lot of readers to help them understand the kind of reader they are and how they can play to that to read more in 2018. So can you unpack what you mean by that and tell the origin story of how you discovered this was a thing? This was a thing. Yeah, I know. It's so economics. I was uh, took a lot of economics classes in college and it, that wonkiness gets into everything. But uh, <laughs> no, so so some people um, have set times that they like to read. Um, it's sort of structurally built into their lives. They have a supply of minutes that are devoted to reading. So these are people are reading is just a habit. You know, they read on the bus every day on the way to work, or they read for half an hour before bed at night. And it is structurally built into their life. The time is there. Other people, it's more a, a function of how much demand there is for this time in their life. And that's about, do you have a good book, right? Do you have a lot of books that are interesting to you to read and, and things like that? Uh, do you have a big stack that you can't wait to tackle? Are you reading something that's a real page turner? Um, because that will drive how much you read. You will make more time to read because you have these things that are compelling you to read. And I think if you want to increase the time that you're reading, it's really helpful to play around with both. Um, because both of those variables are, are things you, you can increase, um, certainly by setting aside more time in your life and making it easier to read in your life and pick up a book when time presents itself. Uh, but then also making sure that you always know, what should I read next to quote the title of a really good podcast? How did you first realize that this that these economic principles applied to people's reading lives? Well, I think I saw it for myself. I mean, I had been, you know, nagging myself to read more for years. And I realized that I would read when I had something that I really wanted to read. And I can remember whole weekends disappearing into a really good book. Um, but for various reasons in my life, I hadn't set aside the, the time or made the you know, process to go find these really good books or figure out what I wanted to read next and what should be on my reading list. And and this year, I've, or this past year, I guess, if we're saying this in 2018, I really made more of an effort to consider that, like, what would I like to read next? And, and then I made some structural changes, too, on, on the supply side to um, set aside some more time that I knew I would be reading. And that's helped as well. So when you know the books that are waiting for you, I would assume you need to be excited about these books. Definitely. We're, we're not in college anymore, right? You're not going to read something that you really don't want to read. I mean, if there's not a compelling reason for you to do it, it's not because you have to write a term paper on it at this point. So, um, you know, it's it's part about knowing yourself as a reader and knowing what really excites you. And when you see a certain author has a new book coming out, you're like, oh, I can't wait to read that. Or if you see something in the library that catches your attention, what are those sorts of books? And I think figuring that out can help a lot on the demand side. Where do you keep your books? Is it important to you for this to work to be able to see them in your physical life? Are you a Kindle reader? What do you do? I do both. Um, I and I would say I'm somewhat agnostic between the two, except I'm, I'm not really. Um, but one of the things that has increased the amount of time I have to read in my life is by using the Kindle app, um, which I'm sure many of your readers have already discovered this. But if any, anyone hasn't, any of your listeners haven't <laughs> discovered this yet. Um, the, the Kindle app means that when you pick up your phone, reading a book is an option. And 
modern sorts have our phones everywhere. I mean, it's always in your purse or in your pocket. And, and it's the thing you pick up when you have five minutes. So you're waiting mm-hmm. for an elevator. Pick, people pick mm-hmm. up their phones to, to fill this time. And so I realized, well, I have a lot of these little chunks of time where I'm just looking at headlines, social media, you know, deleting email. What if I turn some of that time into reading time? And it is it is amazing what you can get through in those sort of three to five minute chunks because they really do add up. So I have read a ton of books on the Kindle app this year. But of course, there's, you know, sometimes I really like to, you know, read in bed curled up with a a paper book. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's certainly something nice about that. And if I think I'm going to be underlining a lot of passages, I definitely want to make sure it's a paper book because I I just can't figure out the whole highlighting thing uh, on the Kindle. I'm sure somebody could explain it to me, but I, I just haven't bothered yet. So, Laura, that's one way to get more reading in. Now, I know you know from personal experience from tracking your own time over many years, I think, at this point, and from reading so many other people's time diaries, you know a lot about how people get their reading done. Could you tell us a little bit about, first of all, what this time diary thing is I'm talking about and how people really can find more time to read because it is possible. And I know you know this because you've seen it over and over again, that we do have a little more control over our time if we'll take a hold of it. Yeah, we definitely do. Um, So I track my time on spreadsheets. I write about time management. And as part of that, I've had hundreds, maybe thousands of people at this point, keep track of their time, ideally for a week. I have been doing this for about two and a half. It'll be close to three years. It's really just about seeing where the time goes. I use these weekly spreadsheets. They start at 5 a.m. Monday morning, go to 5 a.m. Monday morning in half hour blocks, and I write down what I'm doing. It's somewhat like a food journal. You know, you keep yourself accountable, but it's also partly like a diary because I I see where my time went and I have memories um, triggered by by looking at certain things on on the time log from from past years. And, you know, so I, I enjoy seeing that. And I like looking at other people's time logs too. What I've seen on the reading front is that for many people, the time that is available to read is going to be at night before bed. This is this sort of structural leisure time that a lot of adults have. It's after your kids have gone to bed, but you're not quite ready for bed yet. There's some amount of time in there, um, particularly people who have younger kids, so they're in the really busier stage of life. Let's say it's 8 o'clock to 10 o'clock, or it's 9 o'clock to 11 o'clock, or whatever it is. There's some time there. What do you choose to do with it? You know, some people do work some nights, but most people don't work, you know, seven nights a week. They also don't even work five nights a week if they do work during this time. So there's some time. Uh, A lot of people just automatically turn on the TV. They may putter around the house. They may tell themselves it's housework, but it's really not focused, efficient housework. It's just sort of puttering. People surf the web. They look at social media. But you can do something with this time. People who are readers will use this time to read. And if you can get through an hour a night of, of using this leisure time to read, I mean, so just think about averaging out to, let's say, six hours a week. And if you could read 50 pages an hour, I mean, that's 300 pages a week. That's 1,200 a month. I mean, for comparison here, War and Peace is about 1,500 pages. Like, you could get through War and Peace in five weeks at that pace. Obviously, most people do not make it through War and Peace. <laughs> But I think it's because we're not recognizing that that time may be there and we could allocate it toward reading and, in fact, even reading longer works if if we chose to do so. So that time tends to be the bulk of it. Some real hardcore readers will use like 
little kids weekend naps to read. I think mm -hmm. that's a great idea um, that everyone has downtime. So bigger kids maybe get screen time or reading time. The little kids nap. Adults have leisure time and they choose to use it to read. So that's another sort of structural place. I see a lot of it. Then you get the people who are the gold star students. Right? They're listening <laughs> to audiobooks in the car on the way to work. So they, you know, if they've got a half hour commute, that's an extra hour each day right there. You know, you've got people who do what I do with the Kindle app. So, you know, they're taking a kid to karate. They've got 20 minutes while they're waiting there in between when they need to feign interest in the lesson. Like they're using those 20 minutes to read or even five minutes before a phone call starts. Mm -hmm. um, that's time that could be used to, to read. So those are the people who are really getting into it. That's where you find those little bits of time that can be used. Now, I realize it's maybe not the average human being who is filling out your time diaries and sending them to you for your research. But can you tell me a little bit about the range of reading habits you have seen? Well, certainly. Um, so when I wrote a book called I Know How She Does It a couple of years ago, I collected time diary data on a thousand and one days in the lives of very busy women who had big jobs. They also had kids at home. Um, the range was all over. I mean, some people don't read. I mean, that's just the reality. It's not their chosen leisure time activity. Um, they may read like half an hour in the week because there's something, there's articles they had to read for work, mm -hmm. but it, it's just not what they choose to do with their time. That's that's fine. They're probably not people who are listening to this podcast, so we can sort of <laughs> set that aside. Um, you know, a lot of people, it's more in the range of like two to three hours. If you think about it, three hours is about half an hour a day during the week. And, and so that can be the people who are reading some nights before bed when they didn't watch TV with their husbands or partners or whatever. So that's, that's sort of the moderate normal range. But then you've got people who are doing those things of like the audiobooks on the way to work, the hour at night, every night, the two hours, every weekend afternoon. I saw people who are literally reading, you know, 18 hours in a week, which if you think about it, that's two and a half hours a day. That is quite a bit of time. That would certainly be the majority of a woman's leisure time. If she is, you know, working a full-time job and raising a family, 18 and hours would consume much of that. Mm -hmm. um, and those are the people who love to read. And, and I'm sure many of the people who are listening, to you on this podcast are those people and they have found 18 hours to read in their lives and it's probably because they have made it a habit and because they're good about figuring out what they would like to read. I was on book tour last fall and at literally every place I went I would get a question from one reader either privately or in the audience who said my husband doesn't read like I, I need a good book that might hook him. So as you were just saying right now that some people who did your time diaries don't read, I was thinking hmm, maybe they're a demand person and they need to find something amazing. Is it possible that's a way in or do these readers just need to give it up? <laughs> I think they could become demand readers. I mean, clearly they are literate if they're filling out these time logs. So mm -hmm. it's not like, and, and many people do read stuff. I mean, you're reading emails all day. Uh, you're reading probably, you know, articles for work if you have to do that. There is an ability to read. Maybe that things don't catch their eye as something they'd like to read. So, you know, one way into that, I would certainly say there might be books that are really funny, for instance. Um, it may be a novel isn't something that they could get their heads around right away. But like a humor writer, someone like Dave Barry, for instance, mm -hmm. I think of as almost like universally appealing. It's funny stuff like men, women, short chapters. You're going to laugh like that's not a hard read. So I think that people who 
don't think of themselves as readers might enjoy something like that. So, so that would be one way in, you know, as for, for novels, maybe it's something really short or, or seasonal, even that, you know, it's a special time of year. So you might read something related to that. So coming out of the Christmas season, as this is airing, somebody might choose to read a Christmas carol. It's only 100 pages. You can get through it in like an hour and a half. Um, that might be a way in, for instance. And then suddenly you are present tense, a person who reads books, or at least a book, a person who reads a book. A book. Yeah. And, and if you've read one book, I mean, it's not that much of a stretch to do it again. I mean, because I really think it is, to a degree, a habit. And mm-hmm. it's a choice of saying, oh, well, let me use this time. I notice that I have time. Let me choose to use it to pick up a book. And I feel like that's a mental leap that people need to make mm-hmm. uh, in order to read in their lives. And and sometimes I, I want to say this, but I get I get emails. This is the occupational hazard of writing about time management <laughs> out there, you know, speaking about it. And I get emails from people being like, you don't understand. I have no free time whatsoever. I'm like, okay. Nobody required you to read something I wrote or watch something I said and then write me an email about it. So clearly there is some time. Mm -hmm. The question is that it's not as much as you want. Mm -hmm. I totally believe that it's not as much as you want. But there was some chunk of time that you were, you know, stewing about this idea that you had no time that, you know, you went online and found me and, you know, wrote this letter. So, I mean, you, you know, you use that 10 minutes you have a day to read something. If you're reading 10 minutes a day, that's, again, an hour a week. That's, you know, a book a month. Like if you're reading a book a month, you're actually in the top probably like 10% of, of people in, in terms of what you can get through. You really are. You are. I mean, most people do not read that much. And and so even just getting to the point where you could read a book a month puts you into a pretty elite group. And, and then you can decide to up it a little bit if you'd like. What have you observed about your own reading life from your years of keeping a time diary? Well, one thing I've observed, and I've seen this with other women too, is that there are seasons of life. If you have, for instance, infant twins, I totally believe that you don't have as much time to read as you would like. I mean, there's just seasons of life where you have less leisure time. And I've seen on time logs that women with children under age two Mm -hmm. have statistically significant less leisure time Mm -hmm. um, than women with older children. And that probably makes sense to people who are listening to this just in your own life that the time that you might be able to sit back and relax with a book, you're watching your toddler to make sure he doesn't stick a fork in his eye. I mean, this is there's less time for relaxing when you have little kids. Mm -hmm. Fortunately, kids do grow up. I mean, they only spend two years being under age two. And so if you have two children, for instance, you only spend about four years of your life having a child under the age of two. And so the rest of life, there might be more space for for reading. And I saw this in my own life. My youngest child is almost three years old. And it has been this past year after he has been two years old where I have seen that I do have more time to read, that I can, you know, if he's watching a TV show, for instance, he can be reliably entertained by that for 22 minutes. Well, that's 22 minutes I can read. Um, He can play by himself in the basement for a little bit, and that's time I can read. That's the reality of finding some leisure time and, and choosing to read with it. What are your reading habits right now in this present time? Well, so this year, I, I'm, I may be a wee bit obsessive with things that I choose to do. There's something <laughs> of a personality technique. So this year, I've, I've been doing a lot of things. For instance, I've run every day on my running streak. And, and I've been doing a lot of reading, too. I decided to keep a reading log, which I would highly recommend for people who would like to increase their reading because it becomes very motivational to see that number go up. How did you keep yours? 
Um, it is literally just the back of my sort of planner notebook mm-hmm. that I've been keeping. And, and I, I filled that planner notebook. And so now I'm on a different one, but I had to keep this past one around just to mm-hmm. um, keep, keep the log going. But it's just, I mean, it's pages in a notebook, literally pen and paper books read in 2017 is what it says. Mm-hmm. And then I've sort of divided it by month because I have a blog. So I write on my blog about the books I read each month. So that's sort of an external accountability thing too. So the list is good for me because then I see it going up and that's motivational for me. Mm-hmm. Um, writing about it on my blog is an external motivation because then my readers somewhat expect me to post each month of what I've read. And if I'd only read two books in the month, which you know, I'm not saying two books is bad. Like if you're people listening to this say, I read, I read two books a month. That's great. But I've sort of upped the number on that. My readers would expect me to probably read mm-hmm. at least half a dozen books a month. And if I didn't, they'd be wondering, well, what happened? And I'd have to explain it. So, you know, it's it's how I get through stuff. And, mm-hmm. and I like to write book reviews, various places. And so, yeah, that's that's what's kind of done it for me. I read probably most nights before bed for some amount of time. I read during kid activities, karate gymnastics. Mm-hmm. Um, I read in little bits of time here and there. So if I have finished something I'm doing and I know I have a phone call starting in 10 minutes, I'll use that 10 minutes to read. And uh, I've gotten through a lot of books. I definitely will be over um, 120 um, by the end of 2017. And so I'm, I'm pretty excited about that. I'm pretty excited about some of the books that I got through were bucket list books. Do you have bucket list books, Anne? Oh, yes. You already mentioned War and Peace. That's one of them. Okay. And I have, for a project I'm working on, I just went into my home library. This is not all the books in the house, but it is a significant percentage of the books in the house. And they're the ones we've chosen to display. And I went through and I counted the ones that I haven't read that I want to read. And there were 114. Ooh. Like, oh, that could keep me busy for that could keep you busy. a while. Because that's not going to be the only thing that I, no, I read. No, because to read the new releases and all that stuff. So, yeah, that, that could keep you going for what? So War and Peace is on there. Definitely. Any other really long ones that are going to take some effort? The Count of Monte Cristo. Okay. I ticked a few bucket list books off the list this year. It's not always so, like hugely aspirational, but I finally read Empire Falls and I finally read Wally Lamb. I I know this much is true. Isn't big, fat, almost a thousand page book. I know there've been more and um, I haven't read nearly enough Bronte, Mm -hmm. any of the sisters. I've only read the big one from each, I think. And I finally read Middle March. That might have been last year, or it might have been 2016. And there's just a lot of books like that that I've always meant to read. And I'm glad you mentioned that. What were your bucket list books last year? Well, so War and Peace, Uh um, which is surprisingly accessible. I'm going to throw that out there. If somebody wants to tackle a long book, this would be the quintessential long book. um, Because the chapters are really short. Uh Like you can read a chapter in five minutes. And that's pretty motivational to feel like, wow, I had five minutes and I just read a chapter in Tolstoy. Now, granted, there are hundreds of these <laughs> chapters, but it it is doable. And I read, I read it on my Kindle so I could get through those chapters in five minutes on my Kindle app. And the, the Kindle app counter had it at, at 25 hours, which I think was about accurate for what it took to read through it, which 25 hours is not that much, right? Like it's... Um, you know, I, I said I was going to read an hour a day for 25 days. And then 
I wound up reading a lot more than that because it's really good. <laughs> like yeah. you don't get to be a world classic of literature with, you know, if you totally are horrible. And and so you know, Tolstoy really helped it along. I wound up reading um, about 7% per day up until the last wow. few days. I just tore through it. So I am loving the visual of you standing in line at the grocery reading War and Peace on your iPhone. I was. If somebody wants to read a book in little bits and pieces here and there, War and Peace is actually one you could get through in those little bits of time. I read in paper, uh, I read uh, Kristen Lavren's Daughter, yeah. which I got that suggestion off Modern Mrs. Darcy. You had had a post a while ago on you know, challenging readers to read a 600 plus page book, and that mm -hmm. had been on your list. And um, Sigrid Unset. Uh, won the Nobel Prize for Literature for it back in the 1920s, I believe. As I one didn't of, realize that was an award winner. Yeah. And well, nobody knows it. I mean, it's funny because one of the commentaries I read on it, somebody said, you know, there was a book that came out of like the unknown Sigrid Unsen. It raised the question, well, was there a known <laughs> Because nobody's read her. And yet mm -hmm. this book has won the Nobel Prize. So I'd throw that out there as another very readable book. It's about mm -hmm. a woman in medieval Norway. She's surprisingly relatable. She falls for a real bad boy of a husband. He's the ultimate rebel tendency if you subscribe to uh, Gretchen Rubin's four tendencies. She's, she's more of a obliger type and he's a total rebel so keep that in mind as you're reading it but they raised seven sons in medieval norway and you know there's all the political stuff going on and the black death sleeping through sleeping through so i i don't i found it i found it quite readable almost harlequin romancy at times but but <laughs> literary harlequin romancy i read 1Q84, the Haruki uh -huh. Murakami. Oh, that's on my list to read. Mm -hmm. it, it reads pretty fast as well. I, I got through that in, in less than a week. You know, it's I don't think it's as good. It's not as good as, as War and Peace and Kristen Lavren's Daughter. Um, but it's very readable. That's that's worth checking out. So, yeah, those are, those are some of the bucket list books I, I made it through. All right. I like that inspiration. I took 1Q84 to the beach this year, like the hardcover. It took up a significant percentage of the space in our family milk crate of books, but I don't think I even opened it. I mean, I took, I took twice as many books as I could as read because read. Yeah. we were driving. So it's not like you're carrying in a suitcase on an airplane. I always feel free to bring a lot more if it's just going in the back of the minivan and you never know what you're going to be in the mood for five days later. So I like to be prepared, but I was, yeah, it didn't happen. Yeah. No, I took it to the beach as well, but I sort of burned my ships as it were in that I only took that and like one other book. I mean, mm -hmm. <laughs> obviously I had my Kindle, I had my phone. I could have downloaded stuff on, on Kindle to, to read more, but I thought, let me just go for it. And I also had primed the pump by reading like the first 300 pages before we went on vacation. Oh, so like yeah. once you're 300 pages into a book, like you feel like you're going to probably go through the rest of it. Although that one's a 1200 page book. So 300 pages in was only, only a quarter in. So I guess, you know, I, I don't know how the math works. If you'd abandon a shorter book after a quarter, I guess you could abandon that one after 300 pages, but I didn't want to, I didn't want to at that point. Yeah. Okay. I'd love to hear more about your favorites. Are you ready to dive in? I am ready to dive in. Okay. Well, Laura, you know how this works. You're going to tell me three books you love, one book you don't. And we've talked a lot about what you've been reading lately, but what you've been reading immediately like this week. And we'll talk about what you should read next. Okay. Um, three books that I have read recently that I enjoyed. Um, I'll throw out my all-time favorite because I reread this probably every year, which is To the Lighthouse by Virginia Woolf. You know, I've read a lot of her books. Love, again, the lyrical prose, the sort of um, simplicity of it, yet it's so deep. Um, to the Lighthouse is only about 200 pages, but she gets through everything. 
in, in 200 pages. They're just these scenes that stick in your mind, like Mrs. Ramsey lingering at her at the edge of her dinner party, watching it fade into the past and yet sort of clinging to this moment as it as it goes. And I, I just love that so much. And, you know, of course, the the end of it where where Mrs. Ram- Mr. Ramsey realized that a person can, in fact, change. So so that's an all time favorite. Just it's such a light, beautiful book. And she was so ill. I mean, that's the, the crazy thing about it. I, I don't think I've ever read this. Oh. I think I think I had to read at least part of it in high school. Yeah. And I remember that scene you're describing. So I know I've read that scene, but um, it's 200 pages. It's shorter than the beginning of 1Q84. I could probably not. I've read a lot of Virginia Woolf, but I don't think I've read And you haven't one. read that. That's it. I don't think what so. What Virginia Woolf did you read that wasn't that? <laughs> I'm curious, like, what you – because I would say that's her most accessible book. I mean, maybe Mrs. Dalloway is slightly – The last one I read was Mrs. Dalloway, and then before that I read A Room of One's Own. Uh-huh. And what else has she written? So I feel like I'm on an every five-year yeah. Virginia Woolf schedule. Okay. But I just read Mrs. Dalloway, I think, last year for the first time. Okay, I, I can knock this out. Yeah, I think a lot of people read Mrs. Dalloway because they read or watched The Hours, and so that kind of renewed interest in, in that. No, I, th- I think To the Lighthouse is better. Yeah, so I, I let me give that to Anne as a what, what, what should Anne <laughs> I'm always looking for books to add to yeah, my stack. Exactly. So that's I'm a, a supply cider, but I read more when there's great demand. When there's great demand. Mm-hmm. Um, a, a recent release that I was surprised by that I liked um, is Robin Sloan's Sourdough. Have you read that? Well, I've read about 30 pages of it. There's a bookmark in it. It's around here somewhere. Okay. It just wasn't grabbing me at the time. I intend to go back. All right. So I may have been grabbed by it because the the heroine of it is um is like the female version of my little brother. Um, oh, <laughs> because that's fun. He he worked for for Google in San Francisco for years, and he got really obsessed with um tartine or tartan, uh-huh. if you say that, the, which is the sourdough bread company. The narrator Lois in Sourdough. This is this book is by Robin Sloan. Works for this robotics startup in San Francisco, and he satirizes the whole startup scene so well. I mean, like all her male colleagues are drinking this drink called slurry, which is a meal replacement. It's just like, <laughs> it's just like soylent. And it's funny because they have this classically trained chef who's been brought in to do the free breakfast, lunch, and dinner at the place. Right. And yet they're all drinking this. Stuff. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, that's, that's pretty much um, how it goes. Uh, but, but she, you know, is, is bequeathed the sourdough starter by these crazy brothers who have you know run this takeout joint around her but then have visa issues and have to leave the country quickly and they leave their sourdough starter with her and she winds up becoming this baker and it's like just all this stuff about the san francisco food scene and tech scene and i found it like quirky and fun and you know very readable and and another thing that i thought was really cool about it is that it was a male writer doing a believable female character. I mean, she's not stereotypically female at all, but it's like he managed to avoid that. And and so I thought that was a pretty powerful evidence of craft. Um, so I enjoyed that aspect of it. So as part of the fun of reading for you as a writer yourself to see how the author made it happen? Oh, yeah. You enjoy seeing how the pieces fit together? I, I do. And I'm, I'm, you know, trying to get back into writing fiction. I've, I wrote one novel uh, a couple of years ago is called The Cortland Boys, which is an ebook. Um, but I'm writing, working on another one now, and it's going to be very short. We'll we'll see what comes of it. I, I'm the whole fable genre is mm-hmm. does surprisingly well. 
um, for reasons I have not entirely fathomed, although I'm trying to figure out because I'm my, my publisher and I are working together on something that's time management related, but more fable-ish. Um, so it is fiction, but uh, with, with more of a lesson. We'll see what comes of that. But anyway, yeah, no, I love to see the craft of this is how they get started. This is how they hook you. Oh, I can see that this was not that interesting. And then it becomes more interesting when the author did this or look, you know, you're you're willing to stick with the author despite what you can see as these big flaws in a book just because it's compelling enough that you're willing mm-hmm. to look past the flaws. And sometimes I'll even afterwards say like, wow, I really like that book. And somebody will say, well, but didn't you see this? And I'm like, well, yeah, but I guess it, it didn't bug me as much because there was so much else going for it. And it's kind of cool to see also as you read more of any given author that, you know, not everyone bats a thousand. <laughs> Many people don't a thousand and you know seeing stuff like f scott fitzgerald or edith wharton i mean these people you know as the greats of literature did not bat a thousand at all and i guess that's kind of encouraging in its own way it is yeah sometimes i find it demoralizing but mostly it's encouraging (laughs) but nobody nobody knocks it out of the park every time so exactly um, but you can also see how they got better. I mean, that, sometimes that's the really awesome part about it, too. It's less encouraging if you see that they never match their first effort. And then you're like, well, that's that's too bad. Oh, and that's just sad. <laughs> that's just sad. And well, you know, for them that it was it was a rough life then um, at certain authors who never matched their first effort. So if they know and I can think of old time classics and I was just having a conversation with a friend about a contemporary writer of thrillers who nothing matches the first book. And I've had it explained to me like why the sophomore slump is a thing in music, especially. And it's true with novels also. And it makes total sense, but you'd still like to think they get better. The, The basic theory there being that if you lovingly crafted your, your first book or your first album while you didn't have a job or while you had a job that wasn't your art or your craft for 10 years going over it painstakingly, making sure every detail is perfect before you even try to get it out into the world. You you can't pull that off again in 18 months. It just doesn't work like that. That is true. <laughs> it is true. But uh, yeah, I'm always, hope springs eternal for these new books from authors I love. Yeah, well, hopefully, I mean, and, and sometimes actually what you, what you learn, um, and I've seen this sometimes with authors I know is that what their sophomore novel is not actually their sophomore novel. Like they started three or four others that Mm -hmm. they could see weren't going to work. And and that's, that takes a fair amount of wisdom, but then you're getting something that is going to be better. And that often takes a wise writer and wise and patient editors. (laughs) (laughs) um, When you have those together, you, you can work magic. And then I guess, so you, you need a third one. I'm, I'm keeping track. I've written this, my little outline here, what I need to tell Anne. Uh, (laughs) The third one is I'll, I'll throw this one out there just because it's not so much that this book itself was, was so amazing. It's just that it opened up many by the other, an author who I then like, who then there were other people who are very similar that I also like. So I read um, Jaber Crow by Wendell Berry, Mm -hmm. um, also on a recommendation from modern Mrs. Darcy. I think you had a list of books you had reread. Um, mm-hmm. Was that what it was? I, you've read I would believe that, but I'm sure there's more than one mention of Jaber Crow yeah. in modern Mrs. Darcy so, land. Well, he's mm-hmm. a Kentucky guy, right? I mean, you, you've got he that. is, he is. So it he, took me a long time to realize that he's not just a regional author, but is beloved far and wide. Yeah. 
And so I read Jaber Crow and I, I enjoyed it quite a bit. I, I tore through it in a weekend, which it's not a quick read per se. I really was getting into Port William and then I said, wow, he has a dozen other books set in Port William. And so I read many of them. I think I think by about seven books, I, I, I'd you know, done Port William. <laughs> it was like, there wasn't too many other ways yeah. I wish to view. And, and, and some of them are better than others. And, you know, there's certain things, I mean, he's real, you know, pacifist type. And so anytime like a character goes off to war, they're going to come back damaged or in a body bag or whatever. I mean, it's, it, you know, he's very into that aspect of it. And, and it's sort of this over the top nostalgia. I mean, the thing that cracked me up with Jaber Crow is of course the guy who has the modern tractor is going to be the villain, right? <laughs> <laughs> but I don't think the tractors themselves were, were such a horrible kind of corrupting influence. I mean, talk to the Amish about that or something, but uh, you know, so I, I love the description and some of the, you know, I, I underline so many phrases. I mean, you know, to love anything good at any cost is a bargain, you know, that, that phrase from, from Jaber Crow. So I like that. And then because of him, I read, you know, other people said, well, if you like Wendell Berry, you'll like Marilyn Robinson. So I read, you know, her stuff. And then if you like Marilyn Robinson, you might mm -hmm. like Kent Haruf. So I read some of that stuff. Yeah, so it's, it just opened up a whole aspect of writers that I hadn't read before. So I guess that was another one that I, I really liked his, his style too. I just want the Coloradans listening to know that they wrote in, that I, I was properly corrected when they wrote in and told me that it's Kent Hera. Well, just so I, I, I mean, we were talking mm -hmm. about 1Q84 in the past. I was calling it IQ84 <laughs> for the longest time. And somebody had to correct me. They're like, that's not an I, that's a one. I'm like, what? That's a total bookworm problem, though, because if you only read it in your head, you don't even realize until it's time to say it out loud that I just have no idea. With great confidence. and, and... <laughs> Oh, all the time. All right, Laura, what, what are your not so favorites? The good thing about reading a fair amount is I have learned what I don't like. Mm -hmm. um, and, and there are many books that are wildly popular and their authors are very skilled and have great success that I will not, I don't like. Those are, those are my favorites to hear. Yeah. Well, so one that I abandoned um, was The Secret Life of Bees. Mm -hmm. um, and I know exactly why, which is that I don't like the genre of books of the mistreated girl or woman who's actually really special that we just have to see that later on. Um, so anything that's like the Cinderella story is going to bug me a lot. <laughs> so at that, because of that, I mean, I, it's the same reason I, I abandoned um, the little French bistro. I mm -hmm. abandoned the girl with the pearl earring. Many of these books, wildly popular. People love them. It, it turns out, I mean, there's the, it's the reason Cinderella is popular. It's a common female fantasy of like, oh, I've been downtrodden, but look, I will actually, you know, have my good life eventually. That is, um, not a genre I am into. I, you know, while I'm at it, I don't like false accusation stories, mm -hmm. which makes the genre of mysteries um, problematic because in almost every mystery, there's the, the convention where somebody will be falsely accused, usually about 40 to 50% of the way through the novel. And so the way I will read mysteries is if it's like so obvious it was wrong and it's just like, you know, they have to throw it out there, but it's like clearly just, you know, part of the mm -hmm. intrigue and whatever, you know, then, then, and the falsely accused person doesn't suffer too much from it. Mm -hmm. Like that I can deal with. Um, so for instance, I read, uh, Louise Penny's, um, still life. And I thought that was fine the way she mm -hmm. was fine. 
Um, mm-hmm. But a lot of mysteries I, I can't read because of that. And then I guess the final thing that that sort of I, I find hard to read is real social awkwardness. Um, I don't find really awkward, socially painful situations entertaining. I just find them hard to read. And so anything with like awkward dating, like so romantic comedies are hard because of that. Be- and mm-hmm. The whole genre stuff, because it's so much based on the social awkwardness. Um, so I abandoned, for instance, The Rosie Project, which is another mm-hmm. book that did tremendously well. People love that book, but it's just, not that there is, I, I like the narrator of it. I like the the guy with Asperger's who's trying to date, but it's just all the socially awkward dating situations. Just, oh, I just don't want to read it. Those are the books I don't like. All right. None of those for you. None of those for me. Well, what I've been reading right now, I'm reading um, Wallace Stegner's Crossing to Safety. It's I. It was a little slow at the start. It took me I would say 50 pages, 50, 60 pages to start getting into it. But once he starts describing the backstory of, of Charity and Sid, who are the, the neighbor couple that they you know, are captivated by, then it got more interesting. So I guess I found the, the narrator himself not that interesting. This couple was, was far more intriguing and telling their backstory. I was definitely into it at that point. Um, so I've, I've been quite enjoying that. I, I only have about 50 pages to go. So I'm, I'm enjoying the prose, very lyrical. Um, I love the kind of young writer starting out young and hungry when things are starting to work for them. That's That's kind of a I like that ambition in in a character. So that's that's what I'm reading now. Anything you want more of in your reading life? You know, I trust your judgment so much because I I, I read these modern Mrs. Darcy <laughs> lists, and I I'm not saying that every book you recommend I like, but I can tell from your recommendations that it's not a book I'm going to like, right? And so I think that's incredibly helpful because um, I can see from what you've written of it, it's like, oh yeah, that sounds like a book I would read, and others it's like, well, that really sounds like a book I'm not going to read. Oh, good. Because that is the goal. And I really want to remind people right now, not every book is for every reader. So oh, no, there are books people love that are just, you know, not yeah, me. Yeah, yeah. Like you were just saying. So and you have to learn to to listen with your own taste in mind. All right, Laura, that sounds intimidating, but I'm up for the challenge. I'm, <laughs> I'm glad you are. <laughs> Laura, I feel like there's not much to pull out about your books because you are incredibly self-aware. Um I was playing with the idea that you liked that a common thread here is that your books are kind, but I don't know if that's actually true. I mean, I like kind Virginia Woolf. (laughs) I don't know. Is she gentle? No, I mean like gentle. She's gentle. Pull thread is that, you know, cause sourdough and Jaber Crow look really different on the surface, but they're both pointing at something deeper. Like they both have this goodwill about them, I think, about human nature, but that's not necessarily true for 1Q84, is it? Well, I would say that of the long books I read this year, this was, that was my least favorite, you know? And, and so, yeah, that the kind aspect of it and the goodwill of human nature, I think is, is key. And and that doesn't mean it has to have a happy ending. Like I read plenty of books that don't, (laughs) but um, I do like that aspect. And I probably don't like you know, a lot of the sort of cruelty and triggering stuff that I think a lot of modern books do have. Yes. Like I wouldn't consider, well, you know, you ruled out mystery. I'm, there may be some that work, but we're just going to skip that today. But I would never think to be like, oh, here's the latest domestic noir. Like go have fun. Yeah. That, yeah that's not happening. Okay. So what I want to find is books with great writing that you haven't read. Old is not bad. And I also know some of this is just from reading your blog for so many years, and you've hinted at this a little, but you like to learn about new, interesting things. Definitely. Have you read Brideshead Revisited? I have not. 
that's my first pick for you. Okay. I hate saying his name because I never know how. I know it's Evelyn, but is it Woe? Is it Wah? I would have no idea. <laughs> I, I can picture it like on my bookshelf. Evelyn Vow or something, but that's totally wrong. <laughs> and so, but that's again because I've never heard it said. I've just read it, um, but I have not read that book. So that would be a good one. I like this for you because it's a classic. And it had, I mean, not just because it's a classic, but maybe this isn't your bucket list book, but it can hold its own in the big leagues. And I like that for you. Brideshead is a house. I didn't know that for a long time. The, oh, it's been a few years since I've read this and I've read this one a bunch. I thought you might have read it actually because it might be on that same list on Modern Mrs. Darcy with books I've read over and over again with Jaber Crow. But it's about a, a man I'm going to guess he's in his late 30s or early 40s, but I might be wrong. And that's not the most important point. But his travels take him back to this historic home where he spent a lot of time in his youth with this larger than life kind of family. Um, Not quite like Charity and Sid, the same kind of uh, vivacious, welcoming, larger than life kind of appeal. What I really like about it is it has that same tone of the books you found through the gateway of Wendell Berry, like Marilyn Robinson and Kent Hariff. Not not precisely, like this feels a little bit older to me, but it does have that kind of like gentle, reflective, wistful, like I'm looking back at what happened and what might have been and what went wrong and what went right. And I think I think it would be happy like okay. playing with all your favorites. Um, I'm warning you that it does have a love scene that has been called like one of the cringe worthy things in all of literature, not because it's graphic, <laughs> just because people think it's stupid. This is probably like two paragraphs in the entire book. So I just okay. want you to know when I say the writing is amazing, that's not what I'm talking about. <laughs> it's got but, two um, paragraphs. I, can, I can deal with two paragraphs. Right? Two paragraphs. Like, yeah. And uh, again, not at all like graphic or saying too much, but yeah, some critics are just like, really, this is really? dumb. Okay. <laughs> okay. All right. Sounds great. Wow. Okay. I'll put that on the list. Have you read any Alice Monroe? I have not. I like her for you, again, because of the tone, because of the craft. She does stories, which are a little bit different. I mean, a little bit different from what you usually read. And I think that might be something you would enjoy, actually, is veering a little bit, but not too far afield. So I really like reading her work because I think it's so well done and she packs so much into uh, such a small space. She tells these huge stories by saying like, these are the lines they exchanged before he got on the train. Like just, she puts so much meaning in and I really admire an author. They can do that, but they can be really, really sad. Like she says such profound things about human nature and that's not all like roses and sunshine. Um, If you wanted to read her, I would probably start with Dear Life. Okay. Collection that's probably about five years old. She is prolific and she's been writing a long time so there are plenty to choose lots from. i can come from yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. she she won the nobel prize right was she recently uh yes in literature in i mean again that's been in the past five years no that's good i mean i i like to read through especially more like women writers who've won major prizes like that i mean i feel like there's it's a short enough list that i should read all of them so um yes that would be that would be a good one. She she mostly did short stories, right? She's she's a short story yeah, master. Yeah, definitely. Okay. And she's yeah. one um she's Canadian and she's okay. feels like the perennial winner of their big fiction award. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, you really could. You really could make a list of female like major prize winners and actually get through it. Actually get through it. I mean, which is sad on many levels, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and so for a third 
I really think to like play up the sourdough thing. Oh, this is really just baking and not, not sourdough bread. Have you read anything by Michael Ruhlman? No, I have not. I really think you may enjoy rabbit trailing down the world of professional cooking. So he was a journalist who ended up going to the Culinary Institute of America in New York as a like one-off journalism assignment. I believe he wanted to write a piece, but it's possible that he wanted to write an actual whole book. But instead of writing it and moving on to the next thing, because before that he wrote about heart surgeons at the Cleveland, pediatric heart surgeons at the Cleveland Clinic. And after that, he wrote about boys' schools. And then I think he wrote a book about people making old-fashioned canoes out of wood. Oh my goodness. <laughs> so, you know, the Culinary Institute of America was just one in a line of many interesting careers. But then it ended up totally changing the course of his career. And now he is a food writer. That's what he's been doing ever since. But he has this trilogy about professional chefs that starts with the making of a chef. Uh, the next book, I think, is The Reach of a Chef. Okay. I don't know if that's right. So also in the trilogy are The Reach of a Chef and The Soul of a Chef. And those are about what it's like to work in professional kitchens, what the restaurant business is like. I love to hear the behind the scenes of anything. And if that's something that you relate to, it was, it's really interesting to see what goes into operating a restaurant, like how they can be successful, how successful they could possibly be. Like just the financials that came up in one of those books were fascinating to me because we eat out, not like every night, but restaurants are something that I am familiar with. Like I waited tables in college. I kind of know how this works, but I have no idea how it works. And I really thought it was fascinating. And I also really love how he can imbue simple things like, I don't know, making a pate or one of those fancy French preparation things with meat and fish and smoked and it's expensive and you slice it and serve it on fancy plates with nine forks. Um, he can turn it into like this tantalizing cliffhanger mystery. What will happen next? <laughs> what will happen scene. With, the, with the pate? <laughs> and I really admire that. I think, I think that could be a lot of fun for you. So it's cra good craft and good food, I guess. <laughs> I love, I, I do like food writing. I mean, I, I like food in general. I could just eat constantly and I'd be very happy. <laughs> well, it could combine two of your loves. And if you want a more fiction or something that's a little less out there, I'm wondering about Allie Smith for you. Have you read anything by her? I don't think I have, no. I don't think she actually won, but she's, I know she's been shortlisted for the Booker Prize. I think for, maybe for How to Be Both. But she has this really interesting style that feels, again, like a little gentle, a little wistful, but it's very, very different. And she just started last year what's going to be a quartet. It begins with the book Autumn. So they're standalone, but they're interconnected, kind of like Port William, except these are not like the Port William novels. Her theme is time. What is it? How do we experience it and how the recurring milestones in our lives change the way we understand ourselves and how our life unfolds. And as someone who's done a lot of work with time, it is a favorite topic. This might be up your alley. <laughs> yes. Anything about time. I am, I am all over. Um, if nothing more for getting good quotes that I can stick at the start <laughs> of chapters <laughs> in my own book. So no, that sounds great. Those both, those all sound great. I think I, autumn's the first one. It came out late 2016 winter may already be out. No. Okay. This says January 9th and winter is coming out anytime Ooh. now. All right. Well, that's so good. I could read autumn and then, you know, by the time I'm done with it, maybe winter will be available. <laughs> then you can wait two years wait for spring. Wait two years for spring, which is what it pretty much feels like in the Northeast. So <laughs> we're waiting two years all the time for spring. I like how you made that symbolic. 
Laura, of those books, what do you think you'll read next? I think I'll probably go with Brideshead Revisited um, because it is one of those classics I've, I've heard about but have not picked up. And you know I do like a good classic, so that'll probably be next on my list. All right. I can't wait to hear what you think. Thanks so much for talking books with me today. Thank you for having me. Hey, readers. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Laura today. Head to the podcast site to share your recommendations for Laura and let her know there what you thought of my recommendations. That page is at what should I read next podcast.com slash 112. That's 112. And it's also where you'll find the full list of titles we talked about today. Visit Laura at her blog, lauravandercam.com. You can also connect with her on Twitter and Instagram at lvandercam. And don't miss her podcast, Best of Both Worlds, aimed at listeners who love their careers and love their families. I was on a recent episode to discuss how to make more time to read, and we'll put a link to the podcast and to that specific episode in show notes. And pick up Laura's books, 168 Hours, and I Know How She Does It, wherever new books are sold. Readers, we have another great episode coming your way next week, and it's one that's been a long time in the making. We're talking with a whole bunch of What Should I Read Next listeners about a highly controversial topic, how they organize their bookshelves. And I want my books, and especially on these shelves that everyone can see when they come over, to be the exact perfect connection between beautiful and functional, um, where the books like look lovely to those who don't care to read the titles, but are also like organized in a way that a bookish friend could come over and look at a section and figure out exactly what they wanted. Listen wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe now so you don't miss a thing. If you're on Twitter, let me know there at Ann Bogle. That is Ann with an E, B as in books, O-G-E-L. Tag us on Instagram to share what you are reading. You can find me there at Ann Bogle and at What Should I Read Next. And if you enjoy this show, would you please pay it forward and spread the book love in the new year and rate or even better, review it on iTunes. Your reviews help other book lovers find the show, and they fill our bookish hearts with joy here at What Should I Read Next HQ. Thanks in advance. We appreciate it so much. Readers, that's it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. And as Reiner Maria Rilke said, ah, how good it is to be among people who are reading. Happy reading, everyone. Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe and others. I'm Christopher and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or your favourite podcast app and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. At a time when change is constant and we are pulled in far too many directions, we need a way to stay present to life and to increase our ability to remain calm, think clearly and maintain our well-being. Many studies indicate mindfulness improves our mental, emotional, and physical health. On a Mindful Moment with Teresa McKee, you can learn how to practice mindfulness and enjoy its many benefits. Tune in for guided meditations and to hear tips and advice from some of the most respected experts in the fields of mental health and mindfulness. 
the world truly can be a better place. It all starts with a mindful moment.